listening to the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens, a policy analyst at the Institute for Energy Research. Joining me today to discuss the Jones Act is Colin Grabo. Colin is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies, where his work focuses on U.S. trade with Asia, as well as domestic forms of trade protectionism. Colin, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. The Jones Act seems to be something that's in the news a lot, uh, especially for the past couple of years here. Can you give our listeners an overview of what the Jones Act is, its history, and what this policy is supposed to achieve? Sure. So if we want to be technical, the Jones Act refers to Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, and it comprises um, four main elements. These are that ships transporting goods between two points in the United States have to be U.S. flagged, they have to be U.S. crewed, at least 75%, with the remaining 25% comprised of permanent residents, they have to be at least 75% U.S. owned, and they also have to be built in the United States. Uh, this law came about, uh, as I noted, is part of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. This is in the immediate aftermath of World War One. During the war, the United States found that uh, it didn't have sufficient, uh, it was difficult to get enough ships to transport its men and, and, and material to, to Europe. Uh, this is because most of the Allies uh, had high demand for shipping, so shipping was already a premium. Of course, shipping was also being actively sunk by German submarines, so it was, it was sometimes a struggle to get enough ships. In fact, the United States would seize German ships already in U.S. ports to help them transport uh, some, some of these men and material to Europe. And the idea behind the Jones Act was that through these requirements, it would avoid having a situation like that in the future. A couple of the justifications that people give for this policy, the main one is that they want to protect uh, the U.S. shipping industry. That was sort of the ostensible goal. Um, how successful has the Jones Act been in, in actually doing that? So I, I would submit that it's actually been very poor in, in meeting those goals. Um, so as I mentioned before, one of the conditions is that the U.S. ships have to be, the ships have to be built in the United States. This is to protect ship builders so that in time of war we can build ships. So what's happened? Well, since the early 1980s, we've had over 300 shipyards close. Uh, currently, we have three large three major shipyards capable of producing ocean-going vessels one of those the philly shipyard had i believe 25 percent layoffs earlier this year they have no orders uh beyond what they're currently working on so the future is not looking good if you look at the actual number of ships uh in the year 2000 there were 193 jones act ships i believe ocean these are ocean-going ships of a thousand tons or more currently that number is down to around 99 um, so in terms of ships, we're not doing good. In sh- terms of shipbuilding, we're underperforming. And then if you look at the number of mariners, uh, one of the arguments behind the Jones Act is that it'll guarantee uh, mariners that can crew U.S. ships to transport goods in time of war or national emergency. Uh, the Mar- Maritime Administration themselves, they admit that if we went to a war that required a sustained campaign, uh, so beyond the de- deployment of troops, then the follow-through to keep them supplied and so forth, we don't have enough uh, Maris to do that. So I would argue that the Jones Act has not met its stated goals. In addition to that, uh, back in June, you were co-author alongside some of your colleagues at Cato uh, on a policy paper titled, The Jones Act, A Burden America Can No Longer Bear. 
um, where you point out n- not only has the Jones Act not achieved its goals in terms of the shipping industry, but there's also a lot of other costs associated with it. So if you could, could you just go through some of the uh, some of the other problems, the transportation costs, and sure. some of the other things that you discussed in sure. that paper. So the most straightforward cost of the Jones Act is the fact that it raises transportation costs. U.S. ships, if you want to buy a ship built in the United States, these typically cost at least four times more than a foreign equivalent, so quadruple the price. Um, the Congressional Research Service says that it's more like six to eight times higher than a ship built in, in Asia. So we're buying more expensive ships. The crews are more expensive. So all these costs get passed along to consumers. Uh, it means re- reduced choice in terms of transportation. It means that we have more uh, trucks on our roads because um, cargo that otherwise go by ocean is now being transported on highways. So this means more um more congestion, it means more pollution. So those are some of the, I think, overlooked costs, the the congestion pollution, but there's other costs. So when the United States goes to negotiate free trade agreements, for example, uh, other countries do not open their markets as much as they otherwise would because we refuse to give ground on the Jones Act. Um, So there's reduced export opportunities, for example, uh, I think, you know, you add all this together and, and we, we're looking at a cost of the Jones Act that is fairly substantial. Shifting our focus to the policy's impact on the energy industry specifically, as you know, the supply chain in the energy industry is pretty heated political. Uh, uh, it's a complicated political issue. There's a lot of battles fought over building new pipelines and transporting coal and natural gas by rail. What role does the Jones Act play in all of that? And is it, is it making some of these political battles worse? And what's its impact there? Sure. So just like with every other good, the Jones Act serves to push up the cost of, of transporting energy. Uh, as an example, to ship um, crude oil from the Gulf Coast up to the Northeast to a refinery costs about 5 to $6 per barrel. Uh, to ship that same oil to Canada at a further distance costs about $2 per barrel. So it's triple the cost right there. Uh, this distorts you know, the way that uh, these energy markets behave. Uh, oftentimes it becomes more attractive to export some of our energy than to ship it to other parts of the United States because if you export it, it goes to an international destination. It's not subject to the Jones Act. Um, something, a favorite example of mine, there was a, a report released in the late 90s by the GAO which found that to ship oil from Alaska to the U.S. Virgin Islands, which has a Jones Act exemption, it was three times cheaper than to send that same oil to the Gulf Coast. Even though that ship heading towards the Virgin Islands went around the tip of South America and the oil head to the Gulf Coast went through the Panama Canal. So it took you know roughly half as much time to go to the Gulf Coast, yet the expen- it was three times more expensive than shipping all the way around the tip of South America. In addition to that, it seems like if it weren't for the Jones Act, the energy industry would have invested in its supply chain in sort of a different way. And with the rise of LNG exports being um, potentially a, a pretty big uh, economic boom for Americans. Uh, what role has that played in possibly limiting uh, maybe the, the development of LNG markets? Sure. Well, the most straightforward way it's impacted is that there is no Jones Act LNG carrier in the United States. There is no vessel qualified under the Jones Act that can transport LNG between two U.S. ports. So, you know, right there, that's going to make the U.S. LNG industry more export focused. 
um, has you know other effects. For example, in Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rican uh, Electrical Authority there, they want to change their energy generation from an oil-based um, system to one based on LNG, but which would be cheaper for them. But they're a hesitant because they're not assured of having a method of supplying uh, natural gas from the United States from the U.S. mainland. Um, and also the cost uh, could wipe out the, the savings that they would otherwise achieve. Um, you find examples in the Northeast. For, uh, they have actually imported natural gas from Russia last year. There was a pretty famous example of that happening. Uh, because once you factor into transportation, all of a sudden foreign sources of LNG become much more attractive than domestic sources. Our listeners are, are probably wondering then if the Jones Act isn't achieving its ostensible goals and it's causing all these other problems, um, why has it survived for nearly a century? And to us, it's probably pretty obvious, you know, it's a pretty simple rent-seeking story where benefits are being concentrated to the well-organized, well-informed groups and costs are being pushed on to everybody else. Can you just provide us a little bit more detail, though, about the interest group dynamics that are in play there exactly? Who's specifically benefiting from this policy and what sort of barriers for reform does that, uh, do those groups create? Sure. So I think the biggest beneficiaries of this policy are the shipbuilders. I mean, we have, a, we have a law that says that it is illegal in the United States of America to buy a foreign ship if you want to use it to transport goods within the United States. Um, so that, that's a big advantage for them. Also, some of the U.S. carriers that transport goods uh, within the United States, you know, these primarily serve Alaska, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, uh, means that they don't have to worry about foreign competition. That's great for them. Uh, so they can charge these higher prices. You know, back in, uh, I think it was 10 years ago or so, there was a case in Puerto Rico where some of these carriers that served the Puerto Rican market were found guilty of antitrust violations. And I think that, you know, a number of executives were sentenced to prison over this. Um, because again, you know, you're able to pull that off when you're shielded from competition. So they love it. Uh, why does this survive? It's because the average American doesn't even know what the Jones Act is. They don't know what it is. They don't know how it costs them. So we need to educate people. Uh, and these costs are dispersed. You know, we all know it costs each other something, but it's hard to see what exactly uh, the effects are quantifying this is not easy. So the people that benefit from the Jones Act, they are very much invested in this law surviving and continuing. Whereas those of us who, you know, are, are harmed by it, you know, we're harmed, but not to the extent that it's going to cause anyone to march on Washington with their torches and demand action, you know, by, by, by Congress. You talk about how specifically in times of disaster, um, the impact that the Jones Act has um, in those situations. Sure. So a classic example, of course, is Hurricane Maria, which struck Puerto Rico last year. And a time of emergency such as that, and when you're trying to recover, you need uh, relief supplies. You need to get there as fast as possible, which is which with as much as possible. And the Jones Act uh, prevents this. If you have, for example, a foreign ship sitting in Jacksonville, Florida, you cannot load that ship up and send it to Puerto Rico because it's a Jones Act violation. So you have to wait. Uh, hopefully a waiver will be issued. Issued In this case, there was, but it was days later. Decisions have to be made immediately. Um, defenders of the Jones Act will tell you, well, you know, the goods were brought to Puerto Rico, and really the problem there was getting the goods from the port to the inland areas where they're needed. But even when they're transported there successfully, there's still the issue of cost. If we're trying to get relief supplies, that means every dollar we spend on the transportation process is a dollar less that's available for actual aid to be provided. 
uh, in these sorts of situations. So given the, the interest group dynamics that we uh, discussed a little bit earlier, it seems like this law isn't going to just disappear overnight. Uh, but we may be able to improve policy slowly. So what would you like to see happen first? And what are the prospects for reform? Uh, well, what I'd like to see is the Jones Act scrapped and then you know, reevaluated. Uh, look, this is a law that was passed in 1920. The world has changed since 1920. For example, you know, this is post-World War I. We used to transport troops to the battlefield on ships. We don't do that anymore. They fly. Uh, the world has changed. We're talking about, you know, um, automated self-driving cars. Well, that same technology is coming to ships. So the importance of having U.S. trained crew, I think, is going to diminish. It's already diminishing. Um, you know, the number of crew required to work these ships has declined over time. Uh, so we're living in a different world. We need to have laws that uh, recognize these change realities. Now, realistically, you know, is the Jones Act going to be scrapped? I don't think so. But I do think that um, there is an appetite for uh, revisiting at least some of the provisions, primarily do the domestic build requirement. This is a requirement that is very much out of line with the rest of U.S. transportation policy. When it comes to the airline industry, for example, U.S. airlines don't have to buy Boeings. You know, they can buy Embraer, they can buy Airbus, they can buy Bombardier, and we're better for that. And I think Boeing's better for that. I think if Boeing was basically a monopoly, uh, they wouldn't be as competitive. They'd probably have lower quality airplanes, um, and they probably wouldn't be as popular internationally as they will. So I don't think this is benefiting anybody. Uh, and I think, I think that people are starting to appreciate this. And I have had inquiries from people on Capitol Hill that are starting to ask questions and uh, granted, you know, people have raised these questions before, but I'm hoping that with the amount of information that we're bringing to bear, that we can raise people's consciousness of this and that some headway can be performed. So you mentioned that the original name of the act, it's the Merchant Marine Act, um, but it's come to be known as the Jones Act. And Senator Wesley Jones, who uh, that name sort of comes from, is sort of an interesting character in all this. Um, can you tell us a little bit about his approach to originally drumming up support for this? Um, it seems to resemble a lot of the rhetoric surrounding trade policy today. Um, I think it's sort of an interesting uh, example of how uh, decisions that we make today might have lasting impacts. We've seen this. Uh, it's been around for 100 years now. So, Yeah, so Senator Wesley Jones of Washington State, uh, you know, he flat out said he, he wanted to drive uh, foreign ships out of U.S. ports. He thought that, uh, you know, that only U.S. flag vessels should be occupying U.S. ports. Um, I think it's also worth noting. You want to talk about the political dynamics. He's from Washington State. A lot of shipping, uh, a lot of carriers based in Washington State serve the Alaska market. Well, you pass the Jones Act. What happens? Canadian competitors are eliminated. You know, is that a coincidence? I, you know, it's probably not. Yeah. Probably <laughs> not. And I think that that same dynamic continues to this day, where we cite these very high-minded ideals. You know, this is all about national security. But in reality, uh, I think it's about protecting various special interests, the shipbuilders and the carriers that uh, are shielded from competition and the rest of us suffer for it. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you think our listeners would be interested in? And I know Cato is hosting a, uh, a, co a conference next month on this. So uh, do you want to just provide some information about that as well? Yes, uh, we are hosting a Jones Act conference. It's an all-day conference on Thursday, December 6th. Uh, I encourage everyone to attend. We're going to have a discussion uh, about the economic costs of the Jones Act. Um, we're going to try to 
provide both an overview and then dig a little deeper into particular sectors and how they're affected by the Jones Act. We will have a discussion about the national security justification and its validity. And we'd like to conclude the uh, conference with a debate between pro-Jones Act speakers and some of those in opposition uh, so people can listen to the information decide for themselves. Uh, those that are not able to make it to the event, uh, they can watch online. And also uh, people that want to learn more about the Jones Act, I encourage you to go to our webpage for this. It's www.cato.org slash Jones Act. My guest today has been Colin Grabo of the Cato Institute. Colin, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me.